0: Well, hi everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are gonna have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hello and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, the founder of of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. And if you wanna download it, just go to any of your favorite uh, music platforms. You can get it there. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people all around the world at all ages and stages of life that are affected by dementia. First, I want to shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. There you can find Memory Cafes from five different countries. Um, Some are online, the majority of them are, um, but some are starting to meet in person again. So go to memorycafedirectory.com for more information. I also want to give a shout out to Coral Health. They are still allowing people to download two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith for free. During the pandemic, so don't miss out on that opportunity. Again, that's Coral Health, C O R O Health dot and of course, I need to mention Dementia Map, our global resource directory. Uh, tons of great information out there. If you are interested in a tour because maybe you are a provider of of information and resources, I would be more than glad to meet with you. Or maybe you are just a person in need of resources. Maybe you're living with dementia. Maybe you have a family member or friend living with dementia. Maybe you're a business professional just looking for more resources, tools and products. Go to DementiaMap.com and learn more. Also, just wanted to give a shout out to some of our recent past shows. We had Pastor Jenny Jordan on, uh, author Teresa Zink, who has a book out on COVID and essential workers, and Larry Grinner and his mom. He does some wonderful videos uh, with he and her out in public and just uh, amplifies joy okay it's time to introduce you to our guest today this show is in collaboration with roseville minnesota's alzheimer's and dementia community action team which provides resources and information to care partners and those living with dementia during the pandemic So this is our second, um, in our second series that we've worked with this group. And this one is called, What's Your Plan? Legal Considerations When Facing a Dementia Diagnosis. And today we're gonna introduce you to Leah R. Gilbert. She is an attorney and has a private practice here in Minnesota, Gilbert Legal. And she focuses her practice in the areas of estate planning, post-death administration and elder law. Leah truly enjoys assisting clients with disability planning, farm and business succession planning, entity planning, tax planning, and long-term care planning. As we know, life has a lot of planning with it. So Leah, welcome to the show today. I'm really excited about this topic and I'm thrilled that you were able to carve out the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Laura. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Now, before we get into kind of our detailed line of questioning, I always like to ask every guest if they've been personally touched in their own family or circle of friends by dementia. Fortunately, our immediate family, we have not
1: had a family member yet be diagnosed with dementia, but in my world, I practice elder law. And so it's very rare that a client hasn't had some type of family history or a diagnosis themselves.
0: Okay so let's talk a little bit about people trying to plan ahead for retirement and how do you do that how do you distribute assets i know it's complicated and for a lot of people they're like oh i don't need to worry about that now i mean i know my folks even went through that it's like or we don't have that much it's not that important but i would imagine it's really important for people to contact you sooner than later and and yet my guess is people probably don't reach out until there is more of a crisis or a dementia diagnosis that hits. So let's kind of start with that jumping off point. And, you know, what can you do for somebody once they've been diagnosed?
1: Now, I ideally would like to see people prior to a diagnosis. I'm a big believer that estate planning should cover three areas we should plan when you're alive and well. We should plan with what if you're alive but not able and also plan for what happens when you pass away. People usually do a really good job of planning for when they're alive and able to make their own decisions and they've thought about what happens when they pass away. But, Like you said, some people don't wanna think about that gray area. What if they're alive but not able? I strongly recommend everyone over the age of 18 start doing some disability planning because you never know when there could be a car accident. You never know when there could be a stroke or what if you start developing memory issues? I have some clients that aren't willing to admit that there's a problem. They become very good actors where they're very good about hiding any type of discomfort. And so when we're talking about ability to make your own decisions, I strongly believe everyone over the age of 18 needs two documents a power of attorney and a healthcare directive. Now, that being said, I do not believe in a one size fits all. I do not believe in cookie cutter plans, but a power of attorney is the document that says I'm alive, but not able to make my own financial decisions. These are the people that I trust to step in and make those decisions for me. Even though I'm married, my spouse has no access to my individual financial accounts. He can't deal with my social security, my health insurance, my retirement, my disability, because that's just under my name. So without that piece of paper, no one other than me would have access to those financial decisions. So that's why I recommend everyone have that power of attorney, because you then get to decide who makes your decisions and at what point, do they have the authority to act? You can have a power of attorney that goes into effect upon signing. So that way, there's a little bit of a convenience factor. But not able could mean you're at work, you're out of town, you're in a quarantine, you have memory issues, or you're in a full-blown coma. It already goes into effect. So that way, somebody can step in and make those decisions for you. I'm a little bit of a control freak, and some of my clients say, well, I don't want anyone to have the authority to sign for me unless a doctor declares that I'm incapacitated. So it doesn't go into effect or it springs into effect upon that event. So some of my clients say, you will have me evaluated by my medical professional, and if that medical professional says I'm no longer able to make my own decisions, then the person named under the document has the authority to act for me. I have some that say, well, maybe I just want a temporary power of attorney or maybe I'm just going on a trip. So I only want people to act for these two weeks. I am a believer that it should go into effect when you assign it because you never know when something could happen, but every situation is very different. The second document is called the healthcare directive. You will always talk to the doctor first, but if you cannot communicate with the doctor, The healthcare directive says these are the people brave enough to step into my shoes to be my medical advocates. So what doctor do I see? What medications do I take? What to do if I'm terminal? Now, under both of these documents, most people pick a spouse first. You don't have to, but most people do. And since most spouses have probably ridden in a vehicle together, I strongly recommend we name at least one other successor. It is a lot easier to name multiple successors and never use them than try to figure out how do we add someone if there's no one else named. You can have more than one person working together. You can require multiple signatures. You can have independent powers where you might say, I want two people to work together, but only one signature is required. So you pick the people that are gonna get the job done. So I recommend you don't worry about hurting people's feelings. It doesn't have to be family, you pick the people that are gonna do it your way. Now, some of my clients aren't able to plan ahead or if it's a crisis situation where they're not able to sign it, they do not have the capacity to execute legal documents. Then there is a court process that we can go through where a court determines who would act in your best interest. A conservatorship is where the court would appoint someone to manage your money. And the guardianship is where someone gets to decide the decisions of well-being. Under that program or that process, the court is the one making that decision, not you. So the earlier you plan, the more control that you have. You get to decide who you want to make your decisions. Now, in a case of dementia. I have some clients where they plan ahead. We have this great plan where they each had their power of attorney, they each had their healthcare directive, they named each other first. And one of them receives a diagnosis of dementia. I strongly recommend we update it because while the spouse might be able to have major decisions at the time it was executed, now with the diagnosis of dementia, are they really able to continue to make the decisions? if it's early on i have some that say i'm i don't really want to give up my involvement i don't want to give up my ability to go to the doctor with my spouse or make decisions and so maybe it's going to be the spouse and or someone else so that way there's some checks and balances i have some that as long as you're able to sign new documents they say you know i love you sweetheart but based on the situation you're not going to be able to make my financial decisions or appropriately make my medical decisions. And so I do recommend that you review and update those documents where the people named are those that can act today. Now, in addition to the healthcare directive, there is another document called a Pulse. That's the Physician's Order for Life Sustaining Treatment. This is where The client or the patient and the doctor are sitting down to say, if I am terminal or if I'm not able to make my own decisions based on my medical history, based on my diagnosis, would it be appropriate for me to be resuscitated? Would it be appropriate for me to have extraordinary measures? So it's where the doctor and the patient are making some of those decisions together. So it goes hand in hand with that healthcare directive where you can say these are my wishes, these are the people that get to execute my wishes, but I've also had that conversation with my doctor based on a medical situation and a standpoint what would be appropriate for me.
0: Wow, you covered a lot of territory in a in a short amount of time and we're so concise and made it really simple to understand. So For that, I really thank you, because a lot of times this stuff is so complicated, it just kind of goes over everybody's head. Um, I love that you said, you know, everybody should have this stuff at 18. I've been screaming that from the rooftops forever. People just don't understand. Anything can happen to anybody, anytime. And I've personally had several friends who have had their kids get sick And they they're paying for the health insurance, but they can't get any information out of the doctors. And they're like, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, well, that's the legalities of life. Oh, my
1: niece and nephew, when they turned 18, that was their gift from us as a power of attorney and healthcare directive.
0: (laughs) Cool. It's a neat, powerful tool. And you know, something that's so useful and, and helps people shift that mind frame. I liked when you talked about being each other's power of attorney and how often do you drive in a car together and in a car accident is one of those things that can just happen and having those those backup people and explaining all the different ways that it can work or if somebody wants to say you know i'll do the paperwork but they're not taking my choice away from me while i'm able right. so again thank you for for being so detailed the next question i have for you is You know, everybody's situation is different. They're all unique. But, you know, people living with dementia and their care partners and families face a lot of different issues. So how do you help a family who's, who's dealing with various challenges and what types of things actually come up? So once somebody has
1: received a diagnosis, the family usually comes together and they say, okay, let's make a plan. I come from a family of fixers. And so that's what I'm used to where we say, okay, what is our plan? We have a diagnosis. What are we going to do? And it's very easy to get mad at family members. So a lot of my clients like to use me as the scapegoat or the doctor because they can say then, well, the attorney said we should do this or the doctor said we should do that. But it's things such as, you know, when do we take the next step? When do we have somebody take their driver's test again to see if they're still safe to be able to drive. At what point do we have to maybe consider not leaving them home alone? And a lot of times family members say, well, we're gonna take care of each other first. And that is great so long as everybody knows their limits. Caregiver burnout is a very real thing. There's a fine line between husband and wife or spouse and spouse or children and parent And caregiver and patient. We don't want to cross that. Because once you cross it, then there could be resentment. There could be feelings of hurt. There could be, you know, just an uneasy relationship dynamic change. And we want to try to avoid that. We want to make sure that it's safe for everybody. So some of my clients, let's say husband has the diagnosis uh, of dementia. And the wife says, you know what, I'm going to take care of him." And I've had it though, that mom dies first. She's so focused on taking care of dad and he's doing great that she forgets to take care of herself. And so knowing what is our limit? When is it okay to ask for help? When is it okay to maybe have someone else step in to give their caregiver some respite time? When do we need to recognize that we need to get someone out of the house? because some families with a dementia diagnosis, they're very scared of wandering. They're very scared of someone not being able to come home or third party intervention. And so sometimes it's almost as though you become a prisoner in your own home or people get parked in front of the TV or there's very limited activities. And so we wanna make sure we're exploring things that help both parties both the patient and the caregiver so that they both get their time apart and they're both getting their needs met. So recognizing when it's okay to ask for help and when it's okay to maybe have some non-family involved. I have some families that say, no, this is our family. It's a family situation. Our family is going to deal with it and that is okay. I have others that say, my family is too busy. They have their own families, they are maybe not local, they've got their own jobs. It's too much to have somebody be here all the time. So it's going to be a third party. Now, if we want to pay family members to do some of these services, we do wanna make sure that it's very clear who is doing what and what somebody is being paid for and to avoid any gifting issues We want to make sure that if family is being compensated for services, that there is a proper personal care contract showing why mom or dad is paying a family member or giving them money every month so it doesn't constitute a gift if we ever need to apply for Medicaid down the road. I also tell families it is okay to have somebody not be at home. It is okay to look at memory care facilities, assisted living facilities, group residential homes. It is okay. And if they move there, it is okay if you don't visit them every day, because sometimes we need that adjustment time to have somebody figure out the new normal, where if you go visit every day, there could be confusion of, well, when do I get to come home? And that puts a lot of stress and emotion on the person that doesn't have the diagnosis. So it is okay. When somebody is not at home, they're still getting their 24 seven care, but it's done in three shifts. So knowing your limits of what you can and can't do to make sure your relationship still stays between family and loved ones, and we don't cross that line. Now, some of my clients, if they do make that move to a memory care facility or assisted living, depending on what needs are needed, I have some that are very open about what's maybe going to happen. And I have some that actually put it in their healthcare directive to say, okay, if I am diagnosed with dementia, if I go to a facility and I don't recognize you anymore, it's okay that you don't come visit me anymore. If I don't recognize you as family, please don't take it personally. It's not you. It's the dementia. I even have some in there saying, if I'm in a facility and I now have a boyfriend or I have a girlfriend, it is okay. It doesn't mean I love you any less. It's just my new normal. And so if you can have those conversations with your family members, that's great in some situations you can't where the diagnosis it's too far gone or it was a very quick onset and so these are just some of the things that some families have had to deal with. Now if we are not living at home or if we're at home receiving care then we have to talk about how are you going to pay for it. Some people it's you will privately pay and that's what the state of Minnesota says is you will privately pay for all of your in-home care, assisted living, or even nursing home care, unless you qualify for Medicaid. Minnesota, we call Medicaid medical assistance, and it's where the county can help pay for those in-home care services, assisted living, memory care, nursing home, if you qualify. And this is definitely not a one-size-fits-all program, there are guidelines, rules, exceptions to the rules and guidelines. It's a very complex process. And not every facility, not every provider will even take medical assistance as a form of payment. So if there's a diagnosis, that is a topic that the family is going to need to explore. Of If it's not a family member taking care of you, how are we going to pay for it? We want to make sure that if a spouse needs care that the community spouse, the one still at home without the diagnosis, has enough money to live on. Sometimes joke and say the state does a division of assets so that way the community spouse is not living on the street eating cat food. So we wanna make sure we're taking care of both spouses. For single individuals, the rules are a little simpler because the state says there's only one of you. We don't have to worry about taking care of a community spouse to make sure they have enough money to live on. If we have long-term care insurance, that will also provide a lot more options, whether you can be at home and afford to have somebody take care of you, as long as it's safe. If we can go to a facility that you like, maybe a different location, some of them don't take medical assistance. So long-term care insurance could say, this is where I wanna go and I have the resources to pay for. it. Now, some people don't have long-term care insurance. Some people, if you have a diagnosis, it's too late, you can't. But memory issues can sometimes be hereditary. So children, if your parents, or if there is a big family history of stroke or memory issues, you may wanna put long-term care insurance quotes on your to-do list and something that you recognize that this could happen to you. So what's your plan gonna be? Right now in Minnesota, The statewide average for a skilled nursing facility per month is $8,412. Not many people can privately pay that with just their income, and not many people have that resources to be able to pay for that long term. Because with memory, if you're otherwise healthy, you can live for years just needing prompting and supervision. And depending on what type of memory care patient you are, some are very happy, easy going, they're willing to go along with whatever you suggest, you know, it can be pretty easy. But sometimes there are patients that have more aggressive behaviors, some that are a little more violent that they can't be in certain situations or locations. And so, you know, those are the different things we have to look at. Now I have some where the family members get very frustrated with when a loved one has a dementia diagnosis. And one client told me, she said, you know what? It's almost like my mom is a toddler again. She doesn't listen, she runs off, she wanders, she gets a, you know just argumentative and I feel like I need to put her in timeout. And so it can be frustrating for both parties. Now, some of my clients, if it's an early on diagnosis, There's a lot of little things that you can do to stay at home so long as it's safe for everyone. I have some clients that really love post-it notes and they have post-it notes on the stove saying, do not turn on unless you call this number. I have some that put post-it notes on each door. Do not leave without your cell phone. I have some that use whiteboards and they have whiteboards all at the house. Today is, and it gives the date. Our plan today is we're going to the eye doctor, or we're going to see your doctor, or we're going to volunteer, go to the park. So they give the itinerary in a place that the patient or the dementia client can actually go and look and give themselves reminders. You can actually go to the hardware store and get these magnetic doorbell alarms. So that way if the door is open in the middle of the night, the alarm goes off. I strongly recommend that you tell your neighbors if there's a dementia diagnosis. Because if you say, you know what, my spouse is just fine, I'm going to go to work, or my spouse is just fine, I'm just going to run to the grocery store. If it's not a good day, and your spouse starts wandering, if they get confused, if you tell your neighbors to say, hey, if you see my husband out kind of wandering around, can you maybe nudge him back home? it may help keep things a little less escalated than all of a sudden having to call the authorities and getting a third party involved.
0: Well, again, lots of great information. <laughs> I loved how you talked about the burnout situation because so many people don't assess that. And that is, a, that is a, a critical, critical issue for families and try to address these things before a crisis hits though, uh, you know, I've dealt with so many families as well, and usually crisis <laughs> is it what pushes them over the line. Right. But there's no more ignoring, uh, you know, a, a particular situation. Also, you know, asking for assistance um, is a really difficult thing for for most to be able to do. And you know, outlining the just the cost, just mentioning over eight thousand dollars a month—that's a lot, a lot of money to be able to uh, to deal with. And how does that how does that get taken care of? Being able to pay family members for assistance, that's, that question comes up all the time and people don't understand how that needs to be structured and why it needs to be structured. And it really is for that, that look back period um, that is so, so common. So again, wonderful information. You had mentioned, you know, if someone's healthy, they can live a long time. My own mom lived for 30 years with the disease. She was in a nursing home for 14 of those years. Yeah, you gotta be, you're better off being prepared and getting educated and and talking with somebody who's on top of all of the rules and regulations because they do change. And it's just something that the average bear, you know like me and, and other care partners out there you just can't keep on top of it or you don't know necessarily even how to interpret it Or I thought they passed that, and then we'll know it it passed the House, but it didn't pass the Senate, or it's not law yet. I mean, all of those things get complicated.
1: I was just going to say, to make matters worse, in medical assistance world, the rules are updated every six months, and every time the Department of Human Services decides to change one of their policies, they issue a bulletin to say, going forward, this is what we do. And so if it's not something that you practice on a regular basis, what you tell clients or even the advice that maybe some of the facilities are giving may not be accurate either.
0: Wow. I didn't know that they were changing things that often. Now I've been, you know, my mom's been gone since 09, but I remember going in for the medical assistance and, and I had like a little two-wheeler, you know, with a, a just, a box of paperwork stuff and all these three-rig binders. And it was so intimidating. And the, the woman was laughing at me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm organized, you know? And she said, I've never seen anybody this organized. And I'm like, well, you guys scared the bejesus out of me. That, <laughs> You know, you have yep. to be organized. So the only thing I didn't have was the certificate from the VA for my dad. And everything else, you know, it was it was there, all the statements for all the different things. But, you know, I also learned during that process is we've got to consolidate, because this is just too much. You got stuff all over the place. And and so, you know, that was a process too, or even finding where everything is, because some mm-hmm. family members don't want to talk about those things. Um, oh, yeah. You know, they're, they're private and everyone doesn't need to to know those things. Let's talk about, you know, we talked about some of the legal forms and the care payment um, arrangements that you've talked about, but a lot of those are only in effect while someone's alive. So, you know, what happens after someone passes?
1: So the rules change when someone passes away. That power of attorney is a great document to use, but it's only valid while someone's alive. So the powers under that document die with you. So when somebody passes away, the way it works in Minnesota is if you own a joint account and one owner dies, surviving owner wins. They get to keep it. There's no obligation to share. So typically that's how spouses own things. I have some clients that will put a child on as a co-owner. Well, when the parent passes away, that child gets it and there's nothing their siblings can do to make them share. Most do the right thing, but sometimes their right thing isn't always what mom and dad intended. So co-owner keeps it upon death. If there's a named beneficiary on an asset, upon death, the named beneficiary gets it. And it's in whatever percentage and however anybody is named, the named beneficiary inherits the asset. If you have assets in a trust, or a different entity like an LLC or a different document, that document says who gets it how much and how often. But if someone dies with an asset in just their name without a beneficiary designation attached, that is when we may have to go through probate. Probate is not that horrible. It is just the legal process to determine who gets that asset. The will is the instructions for the court. The will says, okay, judge, if my assets are subject to this probate process, these are my instructions. These are the people I would like appointed as the personal representative. Some states call it the executor or the administrator. Minnesota were personal representatives and ultimately you're the paper pusher. The personal representative is gathering all the information, paying off debts, claims and expenses, liquidating things, and then distributing the money in the assets per the wishes of of the will we only use the will if we go to probate and we only go to probate if someone dies with an asset in just their name without a beneficiary designation attached so some of my clients want to avoid probate so we talk about depending on the family dynamics depending on the situation Do we want to just name beneficiaries on everything? Do we want to do a trust? Or in some situations, maybe we do want to have a will. If there's a lot of family dynamics, if we have creditors, if we have maybe lots of beneficiaries, where we want the court to oversee the distribution of assets? So there's lots of different options out there, but there are ways that we can go through probate and there are ways that we can avoid having to go through probate. Now for some clients, if they have dementia, if they have the disease and they needed help paying for medical costs, the county actually keeps a tab. They will keep track of every penny they pay out on behalf of the medical assistance recipient. When they pass away, depending on the situation, the county can come back and say, wait a minute, remember all that money we paid out for mom or dad? We want our money back. So they can do what's called a state recovery, where they could put a lien on a property. They could receive the benefits from certain life insurance policies. If there's any money left over in the bank, the county has the first right to it because medical assistance is the payer of last resort. And the county says, why is it fair for taxpayers to pay everyone's bill if they're able to, number one, give their money away while they're alive, or for families to get an inheritance and not have to pay back what the taxpayers paid on behalf of you know, mom or dad. And so that is something to be very aware of if somebody needs help paying for care, is it's the government. And I sometimes joke and say what the government gives you over here, they're going to take it away over here. And so you go into these programs eyes wide open. So even though we might be not going through probate, it does not mean the county would not be able to receive any benefits that they paid out on behalf of a medical assistance recipient.
0: So I've got a question, because you had mentioned if you had a beneficiary, the money goes directly to them. But you also mentioned if there was life insurance, the state could maybe go after that. Is that only if there's not a beneficiary listed or... Can they still go after that, even if there is a beneficiary?
1: Oh, yes. The beneficiary does not negate the county's ability to go after that money. The beneficiary only determines whether or not we have to go through the probate process. The county is a known creditor, and they can come forward and say, wait a minute, we need to get paid back.
0: Okay, because I think that's a big misunderstanding by a a lot of people on that one. Including myself, I thought if you had a beneficiary, they couldn't touch that. But again, I, you know, I dealt with this many, many, many years ago where things have really, really changed. I I would like to ask with medical assistance, what is the look back period now? I know every state's a little bit different in how they work that, but in Minnesota, what is the look back period?
1: So the look back period for the Medicaid program or medical assistance is actually nationwide five years. And so the day you apply for government assistance, where you meet all the criteria you're eligible to apply, on that day, you have to disclose every penny you've given away in the last five years. Now, this is usually where I get some questions from clients say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The IRS says I can give $15,000 every single person I know every year. Now you're telling me there's a five-year look back. Giving away money for taxes and giving away money for purposes of long-term care are like apples and oranges. So if someone has been gifting and they apply for government assistance, we have to disclose every penny. So we have to disclose cash or check, birthdays, Christmas, anniversaries, graduations, happy Tuesday, here's some money. We have to disclose if the medical recipient applicant And our spouse have been giving money away paying cell phone bills, car insurance, if they've been paying on student loans that they had no obligation to pay for, if they sold something for less than value, like a vehicle or real estate. All of that is a gift. And so on the day we apply, we have to disclose all of those transactions. And the county says, thank you for being good and honest, but because you gave money away, we're going to penalize you. Again, why is it fair for taxpayers to pay your bill if you're able to give away your money? So they add up everything you've given away in the last five years. And every six months, the government in Minnesota, they update their medical assistance numbers. They update some of their rules. And so each year, they do state how much it costs to be in the care facility each month. That is $8,412 as of today. So what we do is we add up everything you've given away in the last five years and for every $8,412, that's one month going forward, you are not eligible for medical assistance benefits. So don't tell clients that to scare them where they go home and they call up the grandkids and say Christmas is canceled, grandpa might go to the nursing home. I don't encourage families to go home and call them up and say think dad might have dementia, so we're going to put your name on the house. Please don't do that. The rules are very different for every situation. There might not be a case where you're eligible for medical assistance based on your assets, your income. If you've planned ahead with long-term care insurance, you may never qualify for medical assistance. And so the five-year look back applies only if somebody asks the county to help pay their medical bills. And we have a five year look back for any uncompensated transfers.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, good, good to know information there. And I know there was so much talk over the years um, about was that look back period going to change. And I'm glad now that it is national because it, it, I don't believe it was at one time. It was kind of all over the board. So. But again it, this stuff is so tricky and there's so many details you don't want to do it alone you really don't even want to try to attempt that now I, i've heard where some people have you know gone through all the process they thought they had all their ducks in a row and then another situation comes up and throws them for a loop and they're scrambling or they're told that they don't have the ability to maybe take emergency action. And, you know, they get frustrated by that thinking, well, didn't we cover that? Why didn't we cover that? You know, all of, all of those things come up. So I'm wondering what sort of problems you've seen come up that, you know, people can actually avoid by maybe just going a little bit deeper.
1: Well, statistically people usually only update their plan every 17.9 years. And so you might not think your life has changed much in the last 18 years, but I guarantee you my world has. I'm a big believer that you should review and update your documents because the situation changes, the dynamics change, the laws change. So if you've already set up a plan, I'm very happy to hear that. That's great, but you're going to want to review it. You're going to want to make sure that the people named are still the people that you want acting. I have some that say, you know what, on my document, I had my spouse first, if my spouse is not able or willing. At the time, I named all three of my children because they all lived within 15 minutes and they all have to sign everything together. Well, today, those three children may live all over the world and to have all three of them signed together may create a burden. I have some that say, well, yeah, I have my two children listed, but they can't stand to be in a room together. Or I picked my agents based on age, it went oldest to youngest, when in fact that youngest, that's the one taking you to and from doctor's appointments. That's the one that's gonna be picking up your prescriptions, paying your bills, dealing with things. So here again, you wanna pick the people that are gonna get the job done. So anytime that there is a change with the family dynamics, anytime that there's a change with your health, your living situation, or if you're just concerned about it, you want to review the documents. Sometimes we say, you're just fine, call us if something changes. Other times we'd say, all right, because now we have a change, these documents should be updated where we review who can act, who can make decisions, whether or not medical assistance is even an option in the situation, Do we want to talk about doing some pre-planning? And then do we need to execute documents? Going one step further, if we need to execute new documents, do we have the authority to do it? Do we have the competency to do it? Or are we stuck with what we have because of someone's inability to make those decisions? So you do want to review it. You do want to maintain it. And it's not something people want to think about. But unfortunately, in my world, it's not a one and done. So you pick about who you want acting and make sure that the documents actually say that. Because I have some clients that they are convinced that they had everything taken care of. Because at the doctor's office, they were told that their daughter could talk to the doctor. Well, daughter tries to call in and finds out all that she was listed as was having a release under a HIPAA. And so she could talk to the doctor if she was there with mom or dad, or she could talk to him, but she actually had no authority to make any decisions or to change prescriptions or to get any details of where they were, even if they were at the facility. So you do want to have things reviewed number one, to make sure they work. And number two, to give you peace of mind.
0: Those are great points. I know of so many people who have gotten divorced and who haven't updated their will or their power of attorney. And I mean, they can't stand the person that they were married to anymore. And now there's, because they're in such denial of having to deal with this stuff and so uncomfortable, they're going to have that person be in charge when push comes to shove or they've remarried. And you know, that spouse should be the one in charge, most likely. So question for you, if somebody, because um, this actually has happened uh, to many people, including my family, we had power of attorney, everything was agreed to. And my parents picked me, I was a middle child to kind of be that, that primary person. And my older brother didn't like that at all. So he went over and at the time, his his girlfriend was a uh, a transcriber in the courts or something. And they went over and they redid another power of attorney. And my dad happened to tell me, and I'm like, well, is that what you want? And he's like, well, he, he said, we had to do it. And I said, no, you don't have to do that. It's up to you. Do you want to talk to Chris, who was their attorney, again? And then Chris met with them. But that could have easily, if they wouldn't have mentioned anything to me, we could have had some really huge problems in terms of how things were dealt with. And I hear that from families a lot. And people don't understand that one can out trump another one. And how do you how do you even pull them back? How do you, you know, how do you fix something like that? So can you talk to that point? So
1: I think surprises are great for birthdays and Halloween, not estate planning. And it's and beneficial to me if my clients are able to share with their family members the fact that they have a plan. Even better, if they're willing to say, this is what our plan does. These are the people we want involved. Do you have any questions? Because if we have somebody that does object, where they might say, well, no, wait a minute, I'm the favorite. I should be able to pay your bills and handle things. Then we can have that conversation to say, this is their decision. They are the ones in charge. They're making this, while they're sound in mind, they're executing these documents based on what they want. Unfortunately, I have had situations where there's family conflict, where somebody says, well, wait a minute, I wanna be involved. I wanna make their decisions. I think they need to do it my way. It's not a problem if mom and dad can sign. It's not a problem if the principal has the ability and the capacity to update, review, and change those documents. But if someone is signing documents that they don't understand, or if they're signing documents that goes against their wishes, now we could have a problem. And if it gets to the point where the family is fighting and there is dynamics, then it may end up being that our last resort is to go through the court process, where now the court is the one determining who has the authority to make decisions. Sometimes when there is that many dynamics, the court option, which is kind of our last resort, because... It should be person-centered where I'm the one making my own decisions, but if I can't and there's drama or there's different dynamics, then maybe it's not a bad idea that the court gets involved, where they're going to oversee, make sure bills get paid, that things aren't going missing, that someone isn't paying themselves to act when they're not supposed to. So as long as mom and dad are the ones making their decisions, it should be fine. However, I do have some clients that try to keep the peace where they don't want anyone to get upset. And so they will go along with the child that has the strongest personality and say, okay, we don't want to anger anyone. We'll sign your documents. Then we do have a problem of conflicting documents because depending on who drafted the document, whether or not they went through the proper steps to notify the people that were named under previous documents, to provide certain revocation documents to different financial institutions. So there could be a question of who really has authority. And when we're dealing with the disease of dementia, you know, sometimes the financial stuff is pretty clear. The medical stuff can be a little bit harder to understand because in an emergency. A doctor is not gonna stop and read through a document to see who really has the authority to do it. They're not gonna page back and forth if there's been amendments or different dates. So they wanna know who has the authority to make a decision now. And if there is any confusion, the doctor is gonna say, all right, here's the deal. We're keeping them alive. You have to go to court to figure it out to see who has the authority to make that call. And that's maybe not what mom and dad wanted. And so that's where it sometimes you have to do the mean attorney voice to say, this is the plan. This is what they agreed to. This is how it's going to work. So I do believe it's better to have a family meeting before something happens, or if the family's willing, if there's a diagnosis to say, okay, this is the plan. This is what we want. These are the people that will be involved. And when we pass away, if there's any money left, this is how it gets divided. Fair doesn't mean equal in my world. There is no right to inherit. Parents can give their money to Bob down the street, and the kids can't say a thing about it, so long as they were competent when they signed their documents.
0: I agree. I think it's uh, it's a really interesting process. When my parents went through, I was able to sit in, and and Chris, the attorney, said, "Nope, you you're outside the room because I need to have a heart to heart with your folks about." each one of you kids and your spouses. We're going to talk about stability and partnerships and divorce and work and all kinds of stuff. And my parents said, no, we really want her in. She knows everything about everything. But it was very interesting how deep you guys go to really make people think about who's going to be in charge of what, who's going to really be there you know for your best interest with my my own folks with my older brother they joked um but yet they meant it and and signed him to be the one to pull the plug because they said laurie and scott are going to have a tougher time doing that but we know mark won't (laughs) you know and so it was it was uh, very interesting to see how how detailed and thoughtful it, it is and necessary it is to to go with all of this stuff what other kinds of things should people do to just make their life easier with the road ahead on, the, on a whole?
1: So I'm a big believer of to-do lists. I give to-do lists to my spouse, my kids, my staff, every file. Everybody gets a to-do list, including clients, because I can talk fast. When we're doing all of this, we talk about so much. Where we talk about the estate planning side, what to do, alive and well, disabled, what happens when you die. We talk about what if somebody does have a diagnosis or if there is one, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna pay for it? We cover a lot. And so I'm a big believer that we have a to-do list so that way people know what I ask them to do, what they need to follow up on, what their jobs are. Number one on the to-do list, make sure someone other than you knows where you keep all of your important documents. Do you have a box, a file, a drawer? Where are you going to keep your stuff? If it's in a safe, who knows where the keys are located? Who has the combination? If you have a safe deposit box, is someone else listed on it? Do they know where the safe deposit box keys are? Number two, plan your funeral. And I don't mean you're planning it down to the funeral ham sandwiches. It's the personal information needed for the death certificate and the obituary. Someone needs to know your mother's maiden name, where you were born, where she was born, the correct spelling of things. If you are married, if it's a blended family, how do we want things worded? There's so many different details of the personal belongings or the where you've been, things you've accomplished that your children may not be aware of. So just having some of that on paper is a great gift. Speaking from experience, my mom passed away seven years ago. And we were filling out a certificate form and I always spelled my grandma's name wrong. And so I was asking my dad, did grandma Marion spell it I-O-N or I-A-N? I always got it confused. And luckily my aunt happened to be in the kitchen and bellowed out, well, doesn't really matter. Her first name was Bertha. None of us knew that her legal name wasn't Marion. And so it's just a nice gift to have some of that down on paper because planning a funeral is planning a wedding in three days. And so just having some of those details taken care of is a great gift for those that are gonna to have to deal with it when you're gone. Don't have to pay for anything, it's free to plan. If you're a veteran, have you talked to the veteran service officer? Are you eligible for any financial, medical, or funeral benefits? Do you have your DD-214, your discharge papers? provide a copy of that to the funeral home so then they can deal with some of those veterans benefits if something happens. I do strongly recommend that you have a healthcare directive and it's on file anywhere you seek medical attention. So it's with the doctor, the clinic, the hospital, if they're not all combined under one umbrella. So that way, if something happens, they already know who to call and who can make your decisions. Review and update the beneficiary designations. If your plan is to name beneficiaries on your cash accounts, life insurance, retirement, routinely check that. I've had some companies that got new software deleted beneficiary designations. So every few years you should be double checking to make sure the beneficiaries match the situation. Same thing, if somebody passes away, updating those beneficiaries so that way the named people are those you want, or the named organizations, So the assets go the way you want them to go. And contact people if something changes. Call your attorney if there's a change in your health, your living situation, any family members. The more time we have, the more creative we can be to make sure the plan matches the situation. It's harder to deal with things and it limits the options if there's not enough time to update documents or to review things.
0: Well, Leah, thank you so much for your time today. This has just been uh, so much great information, just really uh, a treasure trove to help guide people and get them get them thinking. It's got me thinking about my stuff. It's like, oh, I better pull it out and review it again and double check on, on beneficiaries. And I remember just uh, not too long ago checking on my life insurance and and they're like, no, no one's listed, and I'm like, there's always been somebody listed, and that's exactly what happened. Companies switched, and it got lost, and I was sh- I was shocked at that. And it's like, okay, let's get that fixed. So, stuff does happen. Now you can get a hold of Leah by going to her website, which is www.gilbertlegal.org. That's gilbertlegal.org, or you can email her. At Leah, and that's L E A H at Gilbertlegal.org. And her phone number is 952 567 9905. And she's located in Waconia, Minnesota. One last question for you, Leah. I know you're down in Waconia, but how far out do you work as far as surrounding areas and so forth?
1: So I'm a big believer that every situation is different. I do not believe in cookie cutter plans. And so because of that, I do offer a free consultation. I do hold those either at my office in Laconia or by Zoom or phone conference. So we can talk a lot about your specific situation. If we need to sign documents, I give clients the option. Do we want to meet in person at my office? Do you need me to come to you? And so... I'm usually about an hour and a half from Waconia but there are situations that I will go further depending on. I am part of some really great networks of estate planning and elder law attorneys and even within my world there's things that I don't want to deal with so I've got a lot of friends and so if I'm not the right attorney for you I'm very happy to say call one of these attorneys see if they are able to help you with what your needs are If there's this problem, I say, you know, here are some people that you should talk to.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. And again, thank you for your time today. This has just been so beneficial, really, really helpful. So keep up the great work. And I can tell you are passionate about the work that you do, which I think to me is so important, because it really covers all the bases. And this is this is a big thing to cover and to make sure that it's done correctly. So thank you again so much Uh, to our listeners. I hope that you will like, click and share this show and spread it around. More people need to have conversations regarding everything we've covered here on the show. It's not about end of life. It's really about smart living. And like Leah said, we should be getting these, the paperwork and our ducks in a row when we turn 18, when we're legal age. And that should be changed and modified as needed throughout our lives. That's just a good, smart way to live. You want control of your life now? You're going to want it at the end of your life too. Thank you.